Welcome to worship this morning. We worship a great God. The more we realize our need of this God, this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the greater he becomes in our minds. As we read the Word of God, and I know that probably all of you know this, but I remember being young and sometimes someone would say something and, well, everybody knew that but me, so I'm going to say it. Maybe there's some youth that haven't thought about this, but as we read the Word of God, we need to always look for the spiritual meaning. And as we read the accounts, especially in the Old Testament, they are there, there for our learning, and there is something besides the face value. There's something else for us to apply ourselves to today. So this morning, very briefly, I'm going to go through, I guess I'll call it the greatest love story ever told, and you find it in the book of Ruth. But as we think about it, we need to think about the human experience. Because really, it's more than just an account of a family. It is, it is meaningful to us if we see ourselves in it. So in the book of Ruth, in the third chapter, just a few verses. We're actually not going to read from them. I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time here, but we may turn to them later. I'm just briefly going to tell what went on and led up to this point. So there was a man about the time of Judges by the name of Elimelech. He had a wife, Naomi, and he had two sons. And there was a famine in the land, and he had to do something, evidently. It wouldn't have been his mind to move away from the land of Israel, but something needed to happen. So he moved his family to the land of Moab, which I believe was about maybe 50 miles away. Uh, wife Naomi and two sons, Malon and Chilion. And it wasn't very long till Elimelech died in that foreign land. That left Naomi and her two sons. Well, they married, and they lived there for approximately 10 years. And both sons died. Now, we've heard quite a bit this morning, me being knowing what I was going to talk about, I was impressed with the amount of things that have been said about how things don't always work the way we planned them, or maybe we had no plans. But think of yourself and think of the human experience when your plans don't work out or devastating things happen in your life, who is really in control? Can we see it today? Maybe not in this account yet, but listen a little longer. You have three widows. Did I say the sons died? Yes, the sons died. Now we have three widows living in a foreign land. And think of us in our experience. The, the sin that devastates us and the world that lives around or that, that's around us and the hope for a promised land, we're in a foreign land in this world that we live in. So Naomi, the wife, made a decision. She was going to go back to her homeland. 
And of course, I, I know you know the story. The two daughters said they would go. One of them, as the time got closer, maybe they had left, she decided she wouldn't go. But one of the girl, one of the daughters said, your God will be my God, your land will be my land. Ruth decided to go with her mother-in-law. So they traveled 50-some miles back to the land of Israel, back to Bethlehem. And the other daughter went back to her family, the way we remember. But even back in Israel, life wasn't easy. There was shame to deal with, and it's very difficult in that day and age for, uh, for women to make a living. No way to earn money. There's scorn and shame to deal with. There's no hope, no future. And it reminds me of our human experience. We needed a redeemer. And I think Naomi had some wisdom. I think she recognized that. But through it all, God was in control. And as we heard this morning, as we think about often how it is when things don't work out, we can't see beyond today. We don't know what the future is. We can say that God has everything in control, and he does, but we don't see it yet. And I think that's the way it was for them. They were in a really hard situation. No hope. But God led them right to a forgotten relative. So in the Levitical law, if you found a near relative, a kinsman, then they had the responsibility to, first of all, redeem your family property, and if they were willing, marry a childless widow to raise children to, to the dead husband, to keep their family line going. And this redeemer in this, uh, in this story, this redeemer was Boaz, and he was willing. Only God could have worked something like that out. Now let's turn then to the third chapter of Ruth and just look at verses 6 through 12. And this is Ruth as she approached her Redeemer. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. How be it there is a kinsman nearer than I. 
Now, there's some customs in that little scripture reading that we don't understand, that we're not acquainted with, but basically she approached this one that could redeem her, and he was willing. So today, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's our kinsman because Hebrews, the 11th verse in the second chapter of Hebrews says we are his brother. Because of the blood, no one is closer. He is our nearest relative. And he also is our redeemer. And he is willing. He paid the price. He bought our freedom. He restored our relationship back to the Father. And he took our shame upon himself. He gives us hope and a future. And he purchased back what Satan has taken away. And like I said in the onset, I think that as we grow and as we realize how undone we are, the meaning of having a one that could redeem us from that and that could set our feet upon the rock becomes more meaningful. It never gets old. So praise the Lord for our Redeemer today. One more thing. Boaz, the Redeemer, got Ruth as his wife. What did Jesus get? Well, Jesus, the Redeemer, got the hand of his bride, the church, who will be with him forever. When I think about that, and I think about myself, I just say, amazing grace. That we actually could think that we are a prize. It's beyond our comprehension. So let's be faithful to this Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. I think we will uh, take prayer requests. And Ryan, Flora, could I ask you to pray for us, please? Anyone have any requests this morning? Okay, pray for Arlene's brother, Calvin, for his spiritual health and his health as well. Let's pray for Brad and Crystal. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Okay, Ryan, pray please.
Good morning and welcome. So glad to be able to open up the Word of God together and, and just to be here. As the morning started this morning, Brother Kidron was uh, bringing a lesson that was right in the center of where, where God is putting me this morning. We want to talk about God's headship, you see here on the top of the board. And our brother was talking about an accident, a vehicular accident where he lost the whole vehicle, but nobody was injured. And then he reflected back upon it of all the different ways that God had provided for him and, get, and benefited him and way beyond his expectation. And he was recognizing, and he was portraying to us that this morning, that he, was, that he is, knows that he's living under God's headship and that God can take care of anything and he's, and he's going to show his glory. So we thank you for being a messenger of the Spirit today. And as our brother opened up the, the book of Ruth there and talked about uh, Ruth's attitude and, and her desire to live in God's kingdom. There, Ruth is an example of someone who wants to be living into God's headship. And she went to Boaz and she was asking him to cover her with all of the means and the provisions of a kinsman redeemer and to be everything that she would need because she wanted to be living under God's headship. And so there's many things that God has already pulled together to bring to start this message. We're going to be talking about headship, but let's explain just a little bit about the meaning or how the words work here just a little bit. That's why I put some extra things up here. You might understand what what happens to the meaning of a word when you add ship to the end of it. Well, there's three basic ways that words change when you add ship to the end of that. And we're going to show you the example of that. So here's a couple of examples. Now, let's just take the ship out of here, and you have the word friend here. I want you all to picture in your mind your friend. Maybe you have many friends, but just picture one of your friends. That's a noun. That's a, that's a person. You can picture that friend. You picture that, that uh, and what they're like and their personality, everything about them. But when you add the word ship to it and you have friendship now, now you've changed it not just to the person, but now it becomes the state of being or the condition of being in a friendship relationship. So you see how the meaning changed from just the, the image of the person, it went to the whole relationship, the whole state of being and the interaction, the dynamics that you have with that special friend that you're thinking about. Or here in this case over here, you take off the word ship here and you have the word dictator. And you can picture a dictator, maybe you can name a dictator, maybe it's Fidel Castro or somebody like that, that, that all of their life, they spent their whole life, and you can picture Fidel Castro, but when you add the word ship to it, now it's a reference to his position and his actions as a dictator. So you see how it changes the word just a little bit, it expands the meaning of it. So it's not just a picture of, of a particular dictator, but it's that whole position and the, and the involvement of the activities of what a dictator does. It's all the dynamics of that dictatorship. A third example is you picture a horseman. It may, it may be a cowboy standing there with his, with his pony or his, his horse or something and his hat and his boots. And all, or it might be an English rider and all the getup that they have. But you think you picture a horseman. But when you add the word ship to it, now it's not talking specific, specifically about the horseman, it's specifically talking about the skill or the ability of a horseman. It's his horsemanship. Okay. Now, we're going to be talking about headship today. And, and specifically, 
got to get that word right. Specifically, we want to talk about God's headship. Because, and we even had this in Sunday school this morning there in Ephesians, that God, Jesus Christ, is the head of the church, which is his body. And there's that image of we are part of the body of Jesus Christ, and Christ is our head, and he is the head of that body, the church. We're specifically going to be talking about God's headship. And in God's headship, you can put all of these things. You can talk about the state of being of God in his headship over us, his position in his headship, his actions over us, and the skill or ability that God has to create all of this world, to forgive sins, to redeem people. All those actions are included in the God's headship over us. But then, and then in our perspective, as we then turn and look to God, look to his headship, we have a perspective of that. We are looking at him, we are acknowledging that God is our head, he's my head, that we submit our will unto the God's headship will, and then we believe by faith and by, through grace that our eternal salvation, our eternal home by Jesus Christ is under God's headship. That's our perspective as we look to God. But you know, there's people in this world that don't have a God headship perspective because they view themselves as being the head. They don't look unto God as their head at all. No, I'm the head. And everything that I do is, and my will is what drives everything, and, and, and all of my desire, and all of truth even, is inside of me. And that when I'm gone, it doesn't really matter, because I'm just going to go to dust, I'll be annihilated, or I will simply save myself by my good works. Now, do, do you see the difference? That's a perspective that does not include God in his headship over you at all. Those are the unsaved people. Those are the people we need to be praying for. Those are the people we need to be witnessing to. Those are the people that we need to have relationship with and, have, and take any opportunity that God gives to us to help them see their need for God's headship. Okay. Now, let's look at a part of the big picture of God's kingdom of heaven. Now, we, we get, it's so big that we can only just look at a little piece of it. But let's get a little bit of the big picture of the kingdom of heaven under God's headship. First of all, that God, in his headship, created all the angels. God, in his headship, created all the people. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more things that he created as well, not throughout the universe and the world and all the systems and every place, all the things that we live in as well. You go back in the Genesis and you see all those created things. But in that creation week, you have God created because of his headship over all things. He created all of the angels and he created all of the humans, the, the, us, the people, when he created all things because he's God. He has headship over all those things. And so... He chose to create the angels, and he chose to create the people. So let's start with the angels. Because we like to think that we know about the people part. 
But we may not know a lot about the angel part. Now, some, I'm going to go through a lot of verses and passages and so forth, and some of them I'm just going to read uh, to you. I have some of the things written down. Other things we'll turn to. So just bear with me. Have your Bible well greased and ready to go. We're going to look at some things together. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse, verses 9 to 10, it talks about here, it pictures here, you're at the throne of the ancient of days, a picture of God the Father. And that throne is being described, the, God, the ancient of days is described as garments white as snow and his hair is all white and, and, and there, there's just this flaming, fiery throne that he's sitting on. It says, thousand thousands ministered around the throne unto God the ancient of days. There's the angels. It tells us in another, other places that the angels are ministering spirits. And here they are, thousand thousands, an untold numbers of them, ministering at the throne of the Ancient of Days. And it also says that 10,000 times 10,000 people stood before him in judgment, and the judgment was set, and the books were opened. So you're in, in a whole scene here of judgment. And in that whole scene of judgment, wrapped around the throne of God, is untold thousands upon thousands of angels ministering there. So they're ministering spirits. In Hebrews chapter 12, 24 to 22 to 24, it says here, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's quite a scene. This is not a place of judgment here. This is the place of the living God. This is the city he's going to be dwelling in. And, and it also comes to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So you have this untold number of angels there, but you also have all the saved people are also there. People who have been born first or born again are also going to be there. And which are the ones that have their names written in heaven. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's the only way that we can be made perfect, because Jesus is the mediator and there's that picture there, that scene of all those believing people that were made perfect by Jesus and on these innumerable company of angels are there. Because God created angels too. Now I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Just a couple of verses here in Isaiah chapter 6. There's going to be some things that help describe angels to us. Just a little bit. So angels are ministering spirits. They were created and they are innumerable. Then in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, just this little simple but amazing description. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And you know what that means? That was the clothing that he's wearing is so vast and so voluminous that his temple, is simple, his, his train is just filling the entire temple with all the, the volume of material coming off the throne and off the clothing of God himself. What an amazing scene of God is able to wrap us up, to cover us over. Like Ruth was asking Boaz, cover me with your skirts. God is able to cover us in every way with the train that is so capable of wrapping us up. But it goes on. 
Above it, above this temple, above this throne where God sat, above it, the seraphims, that's one of the types of angels. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other, another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just a little picture, a little description there of what was known as the seraphs, individually known as a seraph, but collectively known as seraphim. With a set of wings, they cover their face. With a set of wings, they cover their feet. And there's reasons, you could apply reasons to all of those things. And with another set of wings, they fly and they, they go on the missions that God has put them on in his, in his will. So angels are involved. Part of what they're, they're doing is they're covering things. Let's go to another passage. Turn over in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. We're going to pull just a few verses out of here. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims. Now, that's another kind of angel. You have seraphims and you have cherubims. And it says that in, this, in the opening, in this air, in the, thing, the air space above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. <clears throat> Will you allow me just a little bit of room here to imagine? That could be a very confusing verse, very confusing description. But there's a picture there that something, there's a group of cherubim, there's a multi, multiple numbers of them. And in many, in maybe a case it's often described as innumerable, maybe there's a whole bunch of them there. And they're above the throne and above their heads, there's something that is so translucent and so colorful and it's above their heads and it seems like it's sort of like a throne above their head. Or maybe you could call that a crown or, or maybe you could call that a covering over their heads, on their heads. If you picked up a bulletin this morning, you know that the text is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to eventually get there to be talking about the coverings that our ladies wear. But I'm laying a foundation in, the, in the, a little picture of all of the kingdom of God in, in the basis of headship. Because it's in that attitude that we have toward the headship of God. And the, and the concept of covering comes not just from 1 Corinthians, it comes from the angels as well. In their relationship to God. And so here you have this picture of Ezekiel 10.1. Of this great covering that's over top of them. And it's like a likeness of a throne. It's some kind of a magnificent object, translucent either on their heads individually or collectively over the whole group. It also tells us something about their wings in verse 5. And the sound of the cherubim's wings were heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. Can you imagine that sound of the wings of the cherubim being so loud as the force and the power of the voice of God? 
in the sound of their wings. And in verse 8 it says, There appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under their wings. They have wings, but they have hands like a man. And in many ways the appearance of a man. Turn into the back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19.10, and also a very, there's a very similar verse a few chapters later in 22.9. If, you if you're writing things down, Revelation 19.10, it says this. John was just being informed by this, by this angel of many things that were happening there in, the, in chapter 19. And he says, and John says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou, do it not. He said, don't worship me. This angel's stopping him. I mean, John just fell down right in front of him. He's going to worship this angel. And the angel's very specific. He said, no, don't do that. No, that's not what you should be doing. And then he explains it. And the angel goes on and says, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. That's an amazing statement. There's this angel standing here who's been explaining the prophetic things and giving John an image of what is to come. And John wants to worship him. He said, no, don't worship me because I'm, I'm, sort, I'm very much like you. I'm a fellow servant. I do the things that you do. I'm part of the kingdom that you're part of. We're all under the headship of God. And I, and I count myself as one of your brethren. Do you ever think about that, that angels are our brothers? That they are so similar. They were created beings, but not, but not people. And what's the, what's the chief difference between the angels and us as people? The chief difference is we were all created in the creation week, but the angels were created to live forever. And we were created in a way that we would end up going through death to end up in eternity. A little difference. And that's the reason that cherubims were placed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were cast out to keep them from the way of the, of the tree of life so that they wouldn't live forever in their sinful condition. But the angels were created to live forever. But he counts himself as a fellow servant with us and as one of our brethren because he has the same testimony of Jesus Christ his Redeemer, his Savior. Isn't that fascinating? That an angel claims the same testimony that you and I claim. But he, and he goes on. Worship God. That's who you should worship. Don't worship angels. Don't worship anything else except God. God has the headship over all these things. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy, and he's also speaking there that the things of prophecy are an amazing declaration of God's headship over all things to be able to write hundreds of years ahead of something exactly what was going to happen, and the Bible records those things. And that's the spirit of, of Jesus. And this angel claims the same testimony of Jesus and the same servanthood of Jesus and of God that you and I claim. 
So not only are angels ministering, and angels are innumerable, and angels cover themselves and they cover things. Let's stop there for a second. Think about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant there in the Old Testament and that box of promises that contained the, the, the uh, mosaic, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the, and the manna and Aaron's bud, uh, budding almond branch and so forth. But that box of promises had a lid and that lid was called the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, they sprinkled the blood that was being sacrificed and the cherubims were arched over top of that, nearly touching at the top, and they were arching and covering the place where the mercy took place. So angels cover themselves and they cover things that are so precious in the kingdom of heaven. And they count themselves as brothers and fellow servants with you and I. I'll just read this quick one to you. Matthew chapter 25, 31 to 32, it tells us this, talking about the coming again of the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. He's going to be separating the sheep from the goats. But here's the picture that when Jesus comes, all the holy angels are coming with him. This innumerable company of angels, all these holy angels are coming with him. And when the, the, the adjective is placed on there that they're holy angels, that implies that there are unholy angels. Is that true? If we read the Bible, we understand that, yes, there's an innumerable number that are counted among the holy angels that live in, under the godship, the headship of God, but there's another group, maybe up to a third of the, of the angels, including Satan, who said, no, I don't want to live like that. And that at some time in those first few days of creation, the angels were created to live forever, to be God's servants. And some of them, perhaps influenced mainly by Satan, but the attitude was in all of them, I don't want to live under God's headship. I want to run my own show. And they were cast out of heaven down onto the newly created earth among people. And instead of being ministering spirits to the people upon the earth, it became deceptive spirits. And they were set to destroy as many people as possible and to drag as many people as possible into their eternal punishment that they knew was going to happen to them. But they said, I don't want to do that. Angels were created with a will, just like you and I. He said, nope, I don't want it. I don't want to be under God's head because I want to be God. I want to be in the same place that he is. And God said, you can't live here. And he threw him out. Let's, let's read a little more about that. We might understand about the angels and, and the importance of them in the kingdom of heaven. Turn, if you will, in Ezekiel, chapter 28. Hold that spot for just a moment. Now, of course, you recognize or you remember in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan, in the form of a serpent, came and deceived and tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell, and sin entered into, the, into humankind. 
And so somewhere between the end of chapter 1, where God had created all things and said it was all very good, and by the time you get to chapter 3, these angels, some of these angels said, no way, we're not going to do that. And they were cast out onto earth. And then, the, the, So you have this scene of Satan coming to Adam and Eve and tempting them and, and bringing sin into all the human race. <clears throat> but here's some background to that. Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning at 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. This is referring to Satan. This is referring to Lucifer, referring to the devil. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. You see that word there? Every precious stone that's in the garden of God has been your covering. And then it lists it out. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Angels were created in a day, which means they were created in the days of the creation week, because there were no days before then. It was, they were created in a time and place, which was the earth. And he says, when you were created, on the day you were created, you had a covering of the most beautiful, the most exquisite colors and translucence and, and tones of the precious things of the garden of God. That was your covering. He says in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where an angel is described this way. That Satan, before he fell, he was the anointed cherub that covereth. I don't entirely understand what, what it means to be an anointed cherub that covereth. Maybe we'll understand that someday. But this was a, this was a place, it was a position. It was an ability that, he, that was given to, to, to Lucifer, to Satan. That he had this special quality about him. That he was anointed cherub that covereth. He described his covering was immense beauty of untold uh, worth and value. You were anointed like that. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou, wast, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. Third time they've referenced the covering cherub here. From the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. We'll stop there. This is describing Satan who did not want to live under the headship of God and at everything <clears throat> created in him to live in, in the all of eternity in God's presence and he threw it away because he was given a will. He had to make a choice. Let's turn to another spot and read some more things. These are a series of statements, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, 
at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and here begins a series of I will statements, I will declarations that Satan, Lucifer, made in his heart when he decided he would not live under the headship of God. He says, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The angels and the people were all created during the week of creation week and given a will and some of the angels said no. Just like people. I don't know if you ever got that in your mind that angels had a choice. And if they're still under the headship of God, it's because they chose that. And if they're not under the headship of God, it's because they chose to be cast away and forever separated from God and eternally in torment, and they know it already. <clears throat> That's some background. And our time is nearly up, but I want to talk about the people a little bit. Because God not only created the angels, but he created the people with a will also. But before we talk about the people, I want to go to Matthew chapter 26. And, just and you can just either look at it or just listen here. But Matthew chapter 26 is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to look at Jesus Christ on the night before he went to the cross for you and I. And he was with his apostles, and they lay down, and they fell asleep, and he was in prayer. And three times he said the same thing to his father. And essentially this is what he was saying. He said, oh, my father, Jesus Christ, all man, all God himself, the Messiah, the Savior. On the night before he went to the cross, he's speaking, praying to He says, oh, my father, Jesus Christ exemplified a person who was under the headship of his father, God. And in this moment, he was agonizing, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. See, it all comes down to this will question of what your will is going to be. And he said, you know, he said, in all that agony, he wished there was some other way we could do this. He said, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He was submitting his will to the headship will of God in that moment. And he went back to his apostles and they were asleep. And he goes back a second time and a third time. He's pleading with his father. Is there some other way we could do this? And the pressure and the agony was so great that the blood vessels were exploding and blood was coming out like sweat in his body. 
Okay, not my will. <clears throat> I'm going to live under the headship of my Father. I'm going to do exactly as you have said it should be, even as agonizing as it was. This morning at Sunday School, we were in Ephesians, and we saw there the passage about Christ as the head, and, and also in Ephesians chapter 1 is a, another description of that, of Christ as the head over all things to the church, his body, and you and I as believers are part of that body, we are part of the church, we're part of the body, and who's the head? Jesus is the head of that. That picture is being uh, talked about over and over in the New Testament, that image of this organic nature of the, of the church of God, that we are part of that body, and we are subject unto the head who is Jesus Christ. And just like a body, or say a part of a body, like your hand doesn't just take off and go over there and separate and go grab a hammer. No, we've got to do this together. This is an organic connectedness under the headship of the head. And that's where we find ourselves as people. Because if we make that decision, we make that choice to believe that Jesus is all that he said he was and that he really went to the cross and he really died and he bore all of my sins and all the sins of every person that has ever lived. If we believe that and we acknowledge that and say, Lord, I want to live unto you, I want to be under your headship, then we become a person who's part of the body of the church whose head is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 even talks about that. Quite a bit of that chapter goes on about the body and the details of the body and how the parts of the body can't get along without the other parts. They've got to work together. But the whole picture is that the Jesus is the head of the body of the church. I invite you now to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is where we often go when we want to talk about a woman's, and I'll call it a headship, covering. We often refer to it as a prayer covering because it mentions prayer and prophesying when you be, should be covered as a woman. But I believe in the context of the kingdom of heaven, this is a headship covering. This is a declaration by the, by the woman to say, I want to live under the headship of God. And that with all of this as a context, with all this as a background, it makes reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 pretty straightforward now. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all the things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. Right away, we're talking about headship here. It's very simple, very straightforward. The head of every man is Christ. That's not too hard to understand, is it? Angels understand that too. They live under the headship of God. And so for a man to live under the headship of Christ, that's pretty straightforward. That's understandable. The kingdom of heaven is simple. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And there you have the whole picture of headship laid out. When it says that the head of the woman is the man, that also implies or necessitates that her head is also Jesus Christ, that her head is also the Father. It's all a picture of headship. 
But let's go on. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Right away, a Greek word starts showing up here. And most of the times that the word covered or covering or uncovered, all of it is referring to a Greek word called katalupto. And that is, has several meanings, but it has to do with being covered up, to, be, uh, to cover oneself, to be veiled, but specifically has a meaning that talks about in the Greek of how this is, is worded here, of having something down the head. And that word is being used in these verses over and over again, to have something down on the head. And so it says here to the man that it is a, that a many man that's praying or prophesying, if his head is covered, if he has something on his head, he dishonoreth his head. I think there's two ways to apply that as well, that we dishonor our own physical head, but more specifically in the concept of headship, that we are dishonoring our head, God, who is over us. Because we have put something between us, men, and God. In the same type of logic, he goes on and says, but every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered or doesn't have something down on her head, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. And he goes on, describes that this, it's a shame for a woman to have her hair all shaved off. And so if she <coughs> comes before the Lord in prayer and prophesying, it's as shameful as if she had all of her hair shaved off, so she should have something down on her head as a covering because of her headship unto God. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now let's just make sure that we understand here. This chapter is not just about women. This is why we laid the groundwork of headship. Headship has to do with every man, every woman, every young man, every young girl, every boy, every girl. It's all part of, for every one of us, to live under, in headship unto God. When we talk about coverings, we're not just talking about ladies here. Men, <clears throat> how are you living your, your life? What are you placing in your life to say, I am making a declaration that I want to live under the headship of God in all of my thoughts, in all of my words, in all of my attitudes, in all of my choices? Men, this is something we can do. In everything that we do, we have to recognize that we are under the headship of God. And we may not be putting something physical on our head because we've been forbidden from placing something on our head. But we need to make those daily declarations that I want to live my life under the headship of God. So it goes on here. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, and eight and nine is neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now somehow in that statement, there is a reason, it says for this cause, there's a reason given here. Let me share 
another translation with you. The New King James, I have a John MacArthur study Bible. This is translated in the New King James. 1 Corinthians 11.10 says this, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is why we spent most of this time talking about angels, because here it is placed in that context that a woman should have a symbol of the authority of living under God's headship on her head because of the angels, because they also live like that. And they, they want to be like that, and they want to recognize that and be able to see that in the women and the people who are in this world. Here's a woman who has made a de declaration says, I'm going to live under God's headship, and the angels are going to rejoice in that because they see that symbol of the power, the authority. That's not their authority, it's God's authority. Ladies, this is what you can say every day. You can get up every day and you can dedicate your covering unto God. You can dedicate your covering, say, Lord God, I want to live under your headship. I want to live under the headship of my husband if I'm married or, or it's my father, or who, whatever those relationships are, but ultimately your headship is unto God. Say, Lord God, I want to place this covering on, on my head because of the angels. It's because I want to declare that I'm under the headship of God. That's what it is. You know, this is not just some, some little tradition or some kind of piece of fabric or some kind of demand that some club gives you. This is the kingdom of God. This is a declaration that the angels live under, that we want to be people who are living under the headship of God. And in this instance, the woman has the opportunity to place an object, a thing, on top of her head. Say, Lord God, I want to live in your headship. And the angels are going to rejoice with you in that. That's probably the biggest reason right there, the biggest understanding of what a headship covering is about. Because you are pointing to the power and authority of God when you place that on every day. And you're not doing it for men. You're not doing it for some church or for some, some bunch of elders or something. No, you're doing this for God. And you can, it's a personal thing. You can commit yourself every day. Lord Jesus, I want to live, and men and women, we can both do this. Lord God, help me to live under your authority, under your headship, to submit my will unto your, your will and what you want to accomplish, Lord. I want to be part of your body. I'm just connected to you, just like a body is connected, because you're the head of this. Lord God, teach me this day. I want to commit my life to live unto you. We need to bring this uh, to a close. And we just pray the Lord's blessing of these thoughts in your hearts and hopefully it has helped you to understand what it is you're saying when you utilize a headship covering and what it is you're saying when you commit your life unto God. Let's have a song.